Well, good morning. Uh, I ask that you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking, starting in verse 12 and going to the end of the chapter. Uh, 1 Peter is a book that we are going through currently, the church where I attend and where my family members at City Life Church. One of the very common themes all throughout 1 Peter is that it's about suffering. Uh, there's suffering in every single chapter of First Peter. Uh, different types of suffering. He's very particular in each one. Uh, in chapter 5, he talks about spiritual suffering. You have to watch out there. Is a, the devil is like a roaring lion, lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. devour. In chapter 3, he talks about suffering for righteousness' sake. Here he's talking very specifically about what it means to suffer as a Christian. And in an article in a dictionary, it's not necessarily a fun read. It's the Dictionary of New Testament and Early Church Writings. But there's an article in it on suffering in the very first book of the Bible that William Webb, the author of this article, references is First Peter. Because it's so prevalent. And I, I want to read you just a little bit of what he says about suffering here in First Peter. Because I think this helps us understand what the context into which Peter is writing. He says this. The suffering in First Peter is not caused by official state persecution, but is primarily social in nature. First Peter does not describe a traumatic or climactic moment of acute suffering, but the kind of suffering that wears people down because of its daily pressures. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's not, they're not being martyred, they're not being brought to the Colosseum to die. It's the fact that they are, they are minorities in their culture and they are so different from the people around them that they are being sneered at, they are being, they are being degraded constantly day by day. And this kind of, this wearing down of, of living for Jesus Christ in a culture that does not accept him is the kind of suffering primarily that he's writing to these people who are he's addressing in in First Peter. So with that in mind, we're going to look specifically at the suffering of a Christian, at what it means to suffer as a Christian, what Peter has to tell us here. So if you would follow along with me as I read aloud, First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12 and going to the end of the chapter, verse 19. And it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yea, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, we are promised in God's word that the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him and ask him to help us Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
We need this truth. And as we just sang, would you plant it deep in us? Holy Spirit, would you minister to us as we gather here together for a common reason to worship God, to sing your praises for your honor and for your glory. And Lord Jesus, may we know your work that you've done so perfectly and so well for us. May we give you thanks and honor and glory. May you minister to us, may you speak to us, and may we hear you. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do when you preach a sermon that no one likes? I've had a lot of those sermons, if I'm being honest with you. But I'm actually thinking particular. There's there's one particular sermon uh, that, that comes to mind. And it wasn't because of the topic. It was because I was a brand new preacher who had no idea what he was doing. I was at a rural church in my home state of South Dakota, which is basically all rural. And it was a town of 84 people called Bethel Reformed Church in Davis, South Dakota. And I had this, I had this deep conviction as a, as a young preacher. I had one semester under my belt of seminary. Uh, I had this deep conviction that I always wanted to preach from the, the same translation as the, one, the, the Bibles and the pews. Uh, because I always want people to follow along. And personally, it bothered me when I was younger if the preacher was preaching from a text that I didn't have in front of me. Sometimes it said different things. So I was really, really gung-ho about this. And I preached from the King James Version, uh, the original King James Version from the 1600s. And as a young preacher, let's say I wasn't as prepared as I should have been, uh, nor did I really know what I was doing at that time. And... I was lost most of my sermon because it didn't make sense. The notes I put on the page that I was reading from, to preach from, and the words in the Bible that I was reading from didn't match. So I stumbled my way through it. I got through, and uh, not only was I a new preacher, new seminary student, I was also newly married. Uh, Aaron and I had only been married not even a year at that point. And uh, I did something that I will never do again because it was just a horrible place to put my wife in. But it was it was this conversation on the way home. We're in the car. And we've said goodbye to everyone. We're driving uh, back to stay at my parents' place because that's where we were for the for the week. And I turn to her and I go, "So, what'd you think?" I mean, what what do you do at that point, right? My wife, very wisely, very kindly, without making eye contact, said. It wasn't that bad. And I knew, I knew in that moment it was really that bad. It was, it was, oh, I'm glad it's not recorded. Uh, I'm not talking about that kind of sermon, but what do you do when you preach a sermon no one likes because no one wants to hear it? When the content is hard. When what the Bible says is difficult to swallow. And that's, are we there? We, we might be there this morning. We're really close because you know what Peter is saying? To people who are suffering, he doesn't just say, get to the end of it, it'll be okay. He doesn't just say, this is temporary, and all you have to do is just kind of grit your teeth and bear it. What he says is, rejoice in your sufferings. How do we handle a sermon like that? That's what we're going to look at today.
And you, you can already feel the tension of why this is difficult, right? Because none of us want to suffer, first of all. But think of all the messages that we get around us. We, everything that we're, almost everything that we're told, especially if we're being sold something, is for our benefit, which means often our good, which we usually think of as comfort or ease or the end of suffering. Right? We want our lives to be easier. We don't want to suffer. We want our lives to be improved by making things good for me individually. And what does that usually mean? Comfort. My passions, my desires are fulfilled. And Peter is writing to people and he's saying the exact opposite. Okay, so how can we be convinced that this is true? Because we believe the word of the Lord is true. It is eternal. His truths never fail. Well, this is, this is what Peter is writing to people who are, who are suffering on a daily basis. And he's writing to them specifically, I want to make this as clear as I can, specifically suffering because you're a Christian. Not general suffering in this life. He actually addresses that some. And there are other books of the Bible that also address that. But here he's talking very particularly about what does it mean to suffer because you associate with Jesus Christ. So, uh, if you if you turn in your bulletin, there is an outline, and that's what we're going to follow. There's a, there's going to be four points that we see that that this passage talks about suffering. The first uh, first of those is the fact that we um, we are expected to suffer. That's what Peter tells us and his readers. The second is that we there's a benefit. There there are many benefits to suffering. The third is that we need to pay attention to how we react to suffering. What does that tell us? And finally, um, what does it mean that we have a God who suffers? Those are those are four points of suffering from this passage here this morning. So if you look with me in verse 12, uh, I invite you to keep your Bibles open. We're going to be referring to the passage regularly. Peter does something really brilliant here as he tells them to expect their suffering. If you look with me in verse 12, he says, Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter is, is helping them form an understanding that is going to be of vital importance. And it is really helpful for us too. Because oftentimes if we expect life to be easy or to go good for us, when we suffer, we spend most of our time feeling sorry for ourselves or trying to get ourselves out of suffering, especially when it's unexpected. And Peter here is reminding them of something vital that it comes all throughout the New Testament. If you associate with Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, if you are willing and you acknowledge your need of a Savior, and you turn to Jesus Christ as that Savior from your sins, and He alone is Lord of your life, you should expect to suffer. It's something that Jesus tells His apostles. This is, this is uh, John chapter 15, the very end of that chapter. He says, if the world hated me, Jesus says, they will also hate you. If they didn't love our Lord and Savior but rejected Him and put Him on a cross to die, to silence Him, they will also not love His followers. And they will persecute them as well. Something Jesus says in Luke 14, I, I really like this, I think it's really helpful for us to, to know. Uh, in, in Luke 14, Jesus is telling some parables to get people to understand there is a cost to following Jesus. 
And he gives two examples. He gives two stories back to back. The first is, there's, there's a man who wants to build a tower. He will first calculate how much it costs to build that tower. Because if he doesn't, he may spend all his money on the foundation and then have nothing left. And then everyone who walks by will mock him and make fun of him because he didn't, interp- he didn't, he didn't put into consideration the full cost. And the second story that Jesus says right after that is, there's a king. Will he not first calculate if he can win the battle with his 10,000 troops versus the oncoming army of 20,000 troops? Because if not, when that army is a long way off, Jesus says, he will send a delegate to negotiate peace. Jesus says there is a cost and you have to know it. Because if you don't know it, it will take you by surprise and you'll be unable to handle it. And and Jesus, this is his last verse after he says this. After he says, you have to know the cost, you have to know it's going to cost you something, and it's going to be big. Jesus says this. So, therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. You've got to know the cost is high. You shouldn't be surprised, friends, when you suffer as a Christian. Can I ask you this question? What if you're not suffering for your faith? Is it important enough for you that other people know where you stand and who you serve? If you're not suffering for your faith, why? Something to think on. We should expect suffering in this life because of our faith. Secondly, he talks about the benefits of suffering. And yes, that is true. That You read that right. There are many benefits to suffering. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. It's just as hard for me up here as it is probably for you to hear. But that's one of the things that Peter uses to encourage his people. There are no less than six benefits that he lists here. We're only going to look at three because that's all we have, we have time for. Probably don't even have time for three, but we're going to do three anyway. Um, the first one I want to point out is this idea of purification. This is taken, again, directly from verse 12. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He actually references something very similar all the way back in chapter 1. When he talks about you're grieved by various trials... And he talks about your tested genuineness of your faith. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 7. Though tested, though through fire. And it's this idea of purification because what he's saying here, again, uh, in verse 12, that word to test you is the same word to prove or to to proof gold, to make it pure. And how does that happen? You put it in a fire and you melt it. In order to purify and to separate what is good and true gold from the dross and the garbage and the junk. Now, you can't do that when it's in its solid state. You can't just pick out the impurities in that state. You have to melt it down in order for the two things to be separated. And Peter here is saying, suffering in the name of Jesus Christ does that for the believer. It is for your benefit that you suffer because it purifies your faith and it shows you everything that is insufficient. Anything that is not Jesus Christ will let you down. Anything you worship that isn't Jesus Christ, anything you put in the throne of your heart, including yourself, is going to kill you. That Jesus Christ alone will bring you life. 
And it is a goodness and a mercy when that is shown to you. When you are shown when your idols fail, that is a way that God loves you. So whether that be your career, whether that be family, whether that be relationships, whatever that is in your life, whatever that thing is you feel you cannot lose that isn't God, even if it's a good thing that you put in the ultimate place that only God deserves, when it's shown to be insufficient because it's the purification process of suffering, that is good for you. That's a benefit. I joked about this earlier. I, I, can't, I can't know if I could do a, a sermon without quoting Tim Keller. So here's my Tim Keller quote for, for the sermon. Here's my quota. He talks about, uh, he uses the image in John chapter uh, 15 about the vine and the branches. And the suffering, right? There's pruning that happens. He's actually also talking about suffering like we are in this passage. And he says, to the untrained eye, the one who is, who is dressing the vine looks like he or she is killing it killing the vine because you're cutting off growth you're cutting off leaves there may even be forming of grapes in those places and they're lopped off but to the trained eye to the vine dresser that person knows the best way for this to grow in a healthy and good way is for it to be pruned and and tim keller says this he says nothing was cut that was not a loss to keep and a gain to lose. That's what purification does. A loss to keep and a gain to lose. So first it purifies us. Second, it's a blessing. This is actually taken directly from verse 14. He says this. If you look in there, Peter says this. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means you're, you have favor and you're envied. He just said, if you suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, you are blessed, you are favored. Why? How? Look at how he finishes this passage. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. you when you suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, you are never alone. He is always with you. He promises to always be with those who suffer for his sake. One of the most comforting verses in my darkest moments of my life, I go back to Psalm 23, and there's one verse in particular. Verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. I want it to say, because you're going to take me out of it. I want it to say, because you're going to vanquish all my enemies, and you're going to make my life good and easy, and there's a straight path that's nice and... and, and there's, no, there's no roadblocks in the way. But what, what does David say? You are with me in the valley of the shadow of death. That's what he promises. Do you see the blessing? Do you want to have the presence of God? Suffer for his sake. That's what Peter is telling them and reminding them. It is good. It is good for you. It's good for me to suffer because he's near those who are brokenhearted, those who are suffering for his sake. You cannot know, you cannot know God apart from suffering for his sake. You can't.
Last thing he talks about is judgment. It reminds us that there's an ultimate judgment that's coming. Look with me in verse 17. He says, For the time of judgment to begin is in... I'm sorry. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Pastor Steve actually talked about that, right? This suffering in this life does feel long. But in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is to be revealed for those who are in Christ Jesus, it is a drop in the bucket. Eternity with God in His presence forever, experiencing His love in a new and fuller way, is a great reminder of how we can suffer in this life. And that suffering of what we don't get now, even though we long for it, reminds us of the joy that's to come when Jesus Christ comes again. And we put our hope there instead of in this life now. That's the benefit. A former RUF campus minister told this story about a guy that he knew, I believe, if I, if I know the story correctly, it's been told about three times, so I'm pretty sure this is still a true story. But he was is a 20, early 20-year-old 20 guy who I think was part of the RUF ministry that he was doing, later involved in a local church. And this guy was, I mean, this guy was a rock star in just about everything he did. Um, really popular. He was loved by everybody. Kind of the, the kind of person you always want to be around. Um, and, and he was leading Bible studies. He was deeply involved in his church. I think he was leading several several Bible studies and also attending. He was, he was wickedly athletic. Like he, he was just kind of this all-around guy that everyone's usually jealous of or want to be near. And in his early 20s, mid-20s, he got diagnosed with, with, um, with Hodgkin's. And everything that had really, any identifier as he'd really known himself had been completely taken away. He was not athletic anymore. He couldn't. He could barely even get out of bed. Most of his friends abandoned him. I mean, who wants to be around a guy who's sick all the time? He used to be the life of the party. Now he's needy. And he couldn't do the things he was doing in church. He couldn't attend. He couldn't lead anything. And there was a moment, he said, where he finally got it. There was a moment where he really understood his relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said it was a moment when he was staying overnight after a particularly difficult round of treatment. He was in the hospital bed, and he had to go to the bathroom, and he couldn't make it. He got out of bed, his legs wouldn't support him, and he collapsed to the floor. And he's lying in a ball on the hospital floor between his bed and the bathroom. It's about 10 feet, and he couldn't get there on his own. And he said he got it. He got it. You know why? Because he realized in that moment, on the floor, having nothing of his own strength, that Jesus Christ loved him just as much at that moment as he did anything that he tried to do to earn God's love. That's when he got it. Because he realizes the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for himself. And he said this, for years and years afterwards, he would say, I thank God for Hodgkin's. So, we're expected to suffer. There are benefits to suffering. Third is the reaction to suffering. And this is really interesting because you, know, you, you can already feel the tension of what we're supposed to be and who we actually are. 
right? When we think of things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, right? Those are things we often aspire to, and sometimes we try to display those without actually going through the process of having them be at growth in us. Do you know that difference? Here's a difference. It's a difference between knowing what we should be and who we ought to be and believing what we should believe, right? We know what Peter says here, that we and the people who he's writing to should rejoice in suffering. But when, when suffering happens, what do we really believe? That's when, we, when, that's when it's revealed to us. What do we truly believe? When suffering happens, how do you react? And, and Peter gives two examples here, right? In verse 13, he talks about rejoicing. Um, in verse 16, he talks about suffering as a Christian and not being ashamed. What does it mean to be ashamed for suffering for Jesus Christ? It usually means we want to turn to ourselves for comfort. We turn inward. We become very self-centered. We give ourselves immediate peace, whatever that is. And we often turn to things that aren't God. Is that our initial reaction? And if it is, what does that tell us about ourselves? And this was so this was so poignant for me as I was preparing for the sermon. I, there was a moment when I realized Peter would understand. Peter would understand what it's like to be ashamed of Jesus Christ because he said, I will never deny you. I will go to the cross. I will die with you. And Jesus says, you will deny me three times. And what does he do? He denies Jesus three times. Do you know the first person he denies Jesus to? A servant girl. He's ashamed of knowing Jesus and suffering and possibly suffering for his sake. Of course, he does it two more times. In fact, in the book of Matthew, it talks about he actually invokes a curse upon himself to try to disassociate himself with Jesus. If we're ashamed, we turn inward to comfort ourselves. Or we go to those things that we believe will comfort us now. But how do we get to the point where we rejoice? Do you see what what Peter says in verse 13? Rejoice so far as you share in Christ's suffering that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We rejoice because we know that he is worth it. Is he worth the suffering that you go through? And the answer is yes. He is. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says, an ounce of sin will hurt you far more than 10 million pounds of suffering. We can rejoice in our suffering because it draws us closer to God and because we love God more than we love anything else. And suffering for his sake is worth it to us. A guy by the name of Polycarp, who's one of the first church fathers, died for his faith. He was told to swear by the emperor and curse Christ, or he'd be put to death. And here's his answer. He said, For 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no evil. How can I curse my king who saved me? And as he's going to be burned at the stake, the fire is started. And before he dies, here's his last prayer. He says, I thank you, Lord Sovereign God, that you have deemed me worthy for this moment. For this, I bless you and I glorify you. Amen. Okay. 
If you're feeling the tension, if you feel guilty, you're not alone. How can we do this? This seems impossible. You're telling us not just to escape from suffering. You're telling us to stay in there and even rejoice in that suffering. How is that possible? Good news, friends. You have help. And here's how you can do it. When you realize that we have a God who suffers. Christianity is utterly unique in this way. In no other religion is there a God who suffers for the one who causes him pain. That God didn't have to save anybody if he didn't want to. He would have been perfectly fine without it. But he chose to suffer. Not for his own sake. Not for his own self. To save himself because he didn't need it. He suffered for sinners like you and me. And when we understand the depth of his suffering, we can suffer for him. Do you realize that any suffering you ever go through in your entire life is less than 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of what Jesus Christ suffered for you. He lost all his relationships. Everybody abandoned him. That's horrible. He suffered physically the crown of thorns, being whipped and beaten and spit on and, and slapped and then died on a cross. The most cruel form of torture they knew in that day and age. That is bad. But you know what's even worse? He experienced the full wrath of God for your sin and for mine. He is rejected by God the Father. And all his anger and all the sin that we have ever committed, if we confess in Jesus Christ, Jesus took on himself. And we see how great that suffering is. And when he did it so we don't have to suffer that same fate, and that we can be reconciled to the living, true God, that's what begins to melt our hearts. Do you realize the sacrifice that Jesus did so willingly because he wanted to? Do you know that Jesus Christ suffered not because he had to, but because he loves you? He loves you enough to pay for your sin, Every single one. To place it on himself. And guess what? He will completely do away with suffering when he comes again. He is going to make all things new. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you will celebrate with the God who suffered for your sake. And you will be with him in paradise. Let that grasp your heart. Know the depth of your own depravity and give it to Him. He has already paid for it. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A guy who lost his son very suddenly at the age of, I think his son was 23 or 24, wrote a book. He was... He was trying to process this. His, his name is Nicholas Walderstorff, and he wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And he's trying to process what it means to go through this. And he writes this. God is not the God, no, sorry, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. 
The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. And great mystery to redeem our brokenness and lowliness. The God who suffers with us did not strike a mighty blow of power, but he sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Do you know the immense love of Jesus for you? And if you do, and you know how he suffered for you, you can easily rejoice in your suffering for him. Because, friends, he is worth it. No one wants to suffer. But we can. And we will. We should expect it. And we can endure. And more than that, we can, we can rejoice. Because we know our God is with us. And it reminds us of our need of him. And it reminds us of the extent he suffered to win us to himself. I want to end with this. We actually already had it read today. This is the uh, assurance of pardon, but I want to read it to you again. This is the very end of 1 Peter. This is chapter 5, verse 10. Please hear these words. It may bring comfort to us all. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 10 and 11, says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, would you help us to know this message? May you work it deep into our hearts. May we not just escape suffering to find comfort now, but to know the God who suffers on our behalf. Oh, and that you are worth it. And you are worthy. You are worthy of our greatest pursuits and our deepest love. Show us that you have loved us first when we were still sinners. And you have brought us into your family eternally. All those who do not bear their own sins because they're trying to gain salvation themselves, but all those who bring their sins to the foot of the cross where it's already paid. May we rejoice in being called worthy of suffering for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us strength. We cannot do it on our own, and we fail often. Have mercy on us and draw us closer and closer to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.